Chapters 11 through 15 are about the ritual purity required of all the Israelites, and chapters 18 through 20 are about the moral purity of the people. Here's what's underneath all of this purity and impurity language. Because God is holy and he's set apart, the Israelites need to be in a state of holiness themselves when they enter into his presence. This was called being clean or pure. God's presence was off limits to anybody who was not in a holy state, and this was called being unclean or impure. Now, an Israelite could become impure in just a few ways, by contact with reproductive body fluids, by having a skin disease, by touching mold or fungus, or by touching a dead body. Now, for the Israelites, all of these were associated with mortality, with the loss of life, which gets us to the core symbol of all these ideas. You become impure when you're contaminated by touching death so to speak. And death is the opposite of God's holiness because God's essence is life. Now, this is really key. Simply being impure was not sinful or wrong. Touching these kinds of things was a normal part of everyday life. And impurity was a temporary state. It just lasted a week or two, and then it's over. What was wrong or sinful was to waltz into God's presence carrying these symbols of death and impurity on my body. Don't do that. Now, the last way of becoming impure was by eating certain animals. And the kosher food laws are found right here in this section. Now, there have been lots of theories about why certain animals were considered impure and off-limits to promote hygiene or to avoid cultural taboos. The text just isn't explicit. But the basic point of all of these chapters is really clear. Altogether, these work as an elaborate set of cultural symbols that reminds Israel that God's holiness was to affect all areas of their lives. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you today here in the West Auditorium as well as the East Auditorium. I want to welcome everybody online as well. And I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Leviticus, the third book of the Bible, chapter 11. We are going to be reading quite a lot from that today. And as you're turning there, I want to let you know that two weekends, or excuse me, two weeks from now, our elder team is going to lead us in a week of intentional prayer about our upcoming lead pastor transition. So that's going to take place five times throughout that week, and there are five different places, five different times you can join us for that. And we're going to pray for Pastor Wayne, we're going to pray for Pastor Brian, as well as obviously the future of our church. And so we'd love to have you join us for that. To learn more, please visit firstdecatur.org and click on what's happening. And so today. We are part three of a series on the book of Leviticus. As Pastor Wayne has said the last few weeks, um, this is a book that's sort of unfamiliar to many of us, and it can be kind of confusing. And I'll be honest with you, when he told me I was preaching this weekend, at first I was really excited, and then he said it was going to be on the book of Leviticus, and it occurred to me, you know, there are a lot of parts of the Bible that are really easy to understand, and then there are other parts called Leviticus. And so today we are in for a little bit of a ride. And so as you already saw from the video a moment ago, uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff in these passages that we're going to look at today. And so I asked Pastor Wayne, hey, what advice do you have for me as I preach today? And he said two things. First of all, he said, good luck. And I was like, thanks, Pastor Wayne. And then he said, and the middle school boys will really enjoy today because it's all about bodily fluids. And so for those of you who are middle school boys, either really or at heart, today is for you. Uh, Seriously, though, I'm really excited to share with you today, and I'm excited to look at this and figure out what is going on in these passages and what that means for each of us as we follow Jesus today. Before we dive into the content of these passages, I want to remind us why this book is so incredibly important. You see, in the beginning, human beings lived in God's presence. See, God created Adam and Eve, and he walked and he talked with them, and that's incredible. But we also know that because of Adam and Eve's sin, that God could no longer 
be with them. And yet God wanted to be with his people. And so he began a new relationship with a man named Abraham. And through Abraham, God built a nation of people who would be his people. And we know that toward the end of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, we see that God's people have grown and they're now living in Egypt. And everything was going well in Egypt for a while. But eventually the Egyptians became fearful of God's people. And so they oppressed them and enslaved them. And it stayed that way for 400 years until God sent a rescuer by the name of Moses who would come and he would set the people free. He would lead them out of Egypt into the wilderness where they would once again become God's people officially this time and he would be able to dwell with them. You see, just as God was present with Adam and Eve, he wanted to be present with his people. But because of their sin, he couldn't be near them without them being destroyed. And so if you've seen the first Indiana Jones movie, you might know what this is about. In the, in the first movie, there's the Ark of the Covenant, which is a biblical object, and God's presence does dwell near that object. And when it gets opened, the people basically start to melt. Maybe you've seen this scene. And so even though it's bad 80s special effects, we thought we might not show that in church today. But you get the point. If you get too close to God's presence, it doesn't go well for you. You see, God's presence is incredibly good but it is also incredibly dangerous. It's like the sun. The sun is a good thing. It gives us warmth and light. But if we get too close to the sun, obviously that's not good for us. And so in light of all that, so God developed a system where his presence would live in a tent called the tabernacle and his people would be required to do certain things so that they could live in community near God's presence without being destroyed. And that's what the book of Leviticus is about. It is how a broken people can live near God and approach him without being destroyed. As Pastor Wayne said two weeks ago, it's about how we can draw near to God. And if that's what it meant for them, then that is what it means for us. So today we're going to look at these five chapters, 11 through 15 of Leviticus. We heard in the video a few moments ago, there's a lot of interesting things in there. But these are commonly referred to, these chapters are commonly referred to as the purity laws. In Leviticus, there are three things that God gave his people to do so his presence could be near them. The first of those are ritual, which are primarily sacrifices, which is what Pastor Wayne talked about two weeks ago. Last week, he talked about the priests and the role that they play. And today, we're going to talk about this idea of purity. And in each of these concepts comes up twice in the book of Leviticus, and they each matter to how the people can continue to live near God. It wasn't about God making their life difficult or punishing them. It was about him staying in relationship with them. And so today, let's go ahead and dive into Leviticus chapter 11. Um, The heading in these chapters that was added after the fact, but it kind of speaks to what's in them. And the heading in my copy of scripture said, Leviticus 11, clean and unclean food. Now this is not like clean eating today. However, if you're familiar with kosher eating or eating kosher, this is where that understanding comes from. And so with that in mind, let's look at verse one today. It says this, the Lord said to Moses, and Aaron. So again, we have Moses, who God used to lead his people out of Israel into the wilderness where he would become relationship with them. And then Aaron, who is Moses' brother, who became the high priest we talked about last week. And this is the instruction that God gives them. He says, say to the Israelites, of all the animals that live on the land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. So God says, if you want to eat an animal that lives on land, there's two things that have to happen. First of all, it has to have a divided hoof, and it has to chew the cud. And we know from elementary science class that chewing the cud means they take their food in, and then they regurgitate it and chew it, and this process goes on and on until they can swallow the food and it can be digested. 
So this is very serious, and God gives very clear instructions on how this is supposed to work. We continue on. He says, there are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. He gives examples. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax. The hyrax, another word for hyrax is rock rabbit. Apparently it looks like a gigantic guinea pig. Um, the hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And then God gives an opposite example. He says, and the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. And so God gives all kinds of examples here of the kinds of animals they could eat on land. He also talks about animals they can eat that live in water and the sky, which actually parallels the creation story, which is kind of cool. And then we come to verse 20, and God says this. All flying insects that walk on all fours are to be regarded as unclean by you. There are, however, some flying insects that walk on all fours that you may eat. Those that have jointed legs for hopping on the ground, of these you may eat any kind of locust, great news in light of the swarm coming this summer, or katydids, or crack crickets, or grasshoppers, but all other flying insects that have four legs you are to regard as unclean. And so I'm not going to read the whole passage today of chapter 11. I just wanted to give you a taste, get it taste, because it's about food, bad dad joke, moving on. Um, Thank you for that. The rest of the chapter uh, discusses other animals that are okay to eat and not eat. It discusses avoiding animal carcasses. It even talks about if an insect dies and then falls in something that you would use for cooking, what do you have to do with that utensil? So it's incredibly detailed. God clearly answers what they were to do and what they're not to do, but he doesn't necessarily answer why. So we'll come back to that in a moment, but before that, let's look at chapters 12 through 15. Chapter 11 deals with what goes into our bodies. Chapters 12 through 15 deals with what comes out of our bodies. And the very first thing it talks about, chapter 12 there, is purification after childbirth. And just to spare any man in the room any sort of discomfort, we're not going to read every detail of this, but what we do need to know is that a woman, after a woman had a baby, she was ceremonially unclean for a period of time. And so she was not able to go to the tabernacle or be around anything sacred, but then when that time was up, she could offer sacrifice and be made clean again. Chapters 13 and 14 are all about defiling skin diseases. And just to give us kind of an idea of what this is about, let's read verse 1 of chapter 13 together. Again, God says to Moses and Aaron, When anyone has a swelling or a rash or a shiny spot on their skin, that may be a defiling skin disease. They must be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons who is a priest. The priest is to examine the sore on the skin, and if the hair in the sore has turned white and the sore appears to be more than skin deep, It is a defiling skin disease. When the priest examines that person, he shall pronounce them ceremonially unclean. If the shiny spot in the skin is white, but does not appear to be more than skin deep, and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest is to isolate the affected person for seven days. The rest of chapter 13 and 14 are all about defiling skin diseases and mold. They talk about what a person's supposed to do if they encounter these things, how the priests are supposed to be involved in that, and then what do they need to do to become clean again. <clears throat> Excuse me. Again, there's all this detail about what they're supposed to do, but not necessarily why. And so that brings us to chapter 15, the last one we're going to look at today, and this might be the one that makes us squirm the most. And in, in my copy of Scripture... The title there says, Discharges Causing Uncleanness. Exactly what you thought you were going to hear about in church today, I'm sure. 
And the word discharge is not a word that we expect to hear in church. Yes, maybe at the doctor's office, it's one of those weird words like moist or uh, ointment, just you don't really want to hear it. And so I was looking at this chapter and I said, hey, Pastor Wayne, you know, help me out, like, any thoughts on how to preach this? And his exact words were, well, at least you know your sermon's not going to be dry. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for that. I'm also fairly convinced that we're not going to see any of these verses on signs that are sold in Hobby Lobby that we can put over our dining room table. <clears throat> However, the bottom line remains that while these chapters may be uncomfortable and confusing to us, they were incredibly important to God's relationship with his people. Okay, so what's going on here? Why could God's people not eat bacon, but they could eat locusts? Why couldn't they come to worship after childbirth or having a skin disease or some sort of discharge? You see, in our American mindset in 2021, we have lots of questions. We want to know why this thing and why not that thing. But the truth is, there's all kinds of theories out there. If you don't believe me, Google it. I read a bunch. But what I do know is that nobody knows for sure because that's not the point. What is the point is this one thing. Chapters 11 through 15 are all about one thing, and that's this. It's about clean versus unclean. You see, these are not moral categories. Clean things are not always good, and unclean things are not always bad. It's not about good and evil, because obviously childbirth is a good thing. What they are about, though, is what can come into God's presence and what can't come into God's presence. Clean things can come into God's presence, and unclean things cannot come into God's presence. That's what all of this is about. And so in addition to what is allowed in in God's presence and what isn't, The laws pointed to God's holiness. They pointed to his set-apart nature, his perfection, and then really his people being the same way. Just as God was holy, he desired for his people to be holy. You see, in chapter 11, the dietary rules, they're a physical representation of the people being declared clean before God. The nations around them were unclean, and they ate unclean things, but God's people ate clean things as a symbol of their cleanness. Essentially, they were what they ate. And so that leads me to a question. What, what happens if something unclean comes before God's presence? You see, a few minutes ago we said that God's presence is both good and dangerous. And we read in the scripture that when people would approach God's presence and they were unclean, their uncleanness actually caused them to die. So it's a very serious thing, but that's actually not the biggest point here. You see, as Americans, again, we are individualist thinkers. We want to know, why can't I do that thing? Why can I do that thing? But God's people thought very differently. While we think about me, God's people thought about we. They understood life in a communal way. And while we want to know the specifics of why we can't do something, they accepted that God knew what was best for them. It's kind of like a a parent-child relationship. You know, all of us gathered today, uh, at some point in our life, most of us have been children. In fact, all of us have been children, I think it's fair, fair to say. And, you know, I was a perfect kid who never did anything wrong. My parents were here last service, and they would totally attest that's actually not true at all. Sorry. But here's what we do know. We do know what it's like when a parent gives us a punishment that we feel something to do that we feel like is a punishment, only to later realize that they weren't trying to punish us. They were actually looking out for us because they knew what was best for us. And that's how God's people saw these instructions. And this is important to our understanding of clean versus unclean as well, because a ritually unclean person was not only a danger to themselves, they were a danger to their community. Because uncleanness could be spread through touching or through sharing objects like dishes 
or a chair or a bed. And so if somebody was unclean, sat in a chair, and then they left and you didn't know it, you also sat in that chair, you would also be unclean. And so the concern was much deeper than what they could or couldn't do. It was about being a nation of people who was clean together because they were concerned that their constant uncleanness would defile the camp. And if the camp was defiled, then God would no longer be able to live there. And so they understood that they had clear obligations if they were going to live in God's presence and he was going to live with them. So this stuff is all kind of, it's heavy, it's a little intimidating, a little confusing, but here's the good news. Being unclean was not an issue as long as it was handled properly. And for the most part, being unclean was dealt through sacrifice. That's the kinds of things we read about in the book of Leviticus. <clears throat> okay, so what? So we've talked about what this meant for God's people. We've talked about how all of this worked. But what does this mean for us? Because today, God's presence, it doesn't dwell in the tabernacle or the temple. And I have some skin issues. I go to a dermatologist, but I've never been to a Levitical priest to evaluate whether I'm clean or unclean. But we know that these laws were foundational to their relationship with the people, with God's relationship with his people. And if that's true, they are for us too. And so in light of that, I just want to share a few observations I have with you today as I study these passages and I thought about what they meant for each of us today. And the first thing is this. It's always been about relationship. You see, it may not make sense to us, but the gore of the sacrifices, the, the dietary laws, the restrictions regarding going to worship after childbirth or with a skin disease or a discharge, these things are weird to us, but ultimately they are about relationship. These rules, these laws exist because God desired to dwell with his people and he went to extraordinary lengths to make sure that his people could be with him. And there's no greater demonstration than that than, than Jesus coming to become one of us so that he could give up his life on our behalf. You see, the book of Leviticus taught the people how to become clean once they were unclean. But Jesus made a way for all people throughout all the world to come to know him, to be made clean through his body and through his blood given on a cross. And so when we look at the book of Leviticus, it should remind us of a couple things. It should remind us, first of all, that God desired relationship with his people, but he also desires relationship with you and with me. It should also remind us that, however, that the price of that relationship was incredibly costly because to make something that was unclean clean always required sacrifice. And so God loved us so much that he sent his son to become that sacrifice for us, that through his body and through his blood, we as unclean people could be made clean so that we could be in relationship with God. And we have an opportunity to respond to that, to, to accept that, to invite that into our lives, and then out of gratitude for what he's done for us, to begin to align our lives with the things that he has called us to. And so if you're with us today, and both here in person or online, and you know what it's like to be unclean, you know what it's like to be distant from God, we want you to know that God created a way through his son for you to be made clean, to be in relationship with him. And so we'd love to talk with you about that. If that's something you'd like to talk about, we're available after the service today. Please come talk to one of our pastors or our staff or really any of us at any time. Again, you can text the church phone number 217-875-3350 and just text the word Jesus or start a conversation with us. Either way, somebody will be happy to reach out to you and have that conversation. So my first observation is that it's all about relationship. The second one is this, is that our God is holy. Now, now we know this, 
because we sing about it almost every week. But as I look at these passages, I wonder, do we really understand what that means? A few moments ago, we said that Leviticus is an instruction on how broken people can live near God and approach God without being destroyed. And yes, we have the blood of Christ washing over us to make us clean. But I wonder how often we remember that our God is holy, that he is both good and dangerous. Now, before I came to be a youth pastor here, I was, or excuse me, a pastor here, I was a youth pastor at a church in Michigan for 13 years. And each year around this time, we would do something called Messy Game Night, which we would just play these dumb, messy games as kind of a celebration of the end of the year with our students and our leaders. <clears throat> and one particular year, we thought it'd be cool to promote that by me explaining to the students what was going on while my coworkers pelted me with flour and rainbow sprinkles. And I think we have a picture of kind of the aftermath of that. Yeah. So, um, by the way, rainbow sprinkles do not wash out of your hair. They just kind of turn into a liquid rainbow and keep coming. So don't, don't advise it. Um, however, uh, as I was looking like this, it occurred to me, I need to go home and shower, but my keys and my wallet are upstairs in my office. And so I thought, how, how am I going to get up there without nobody seeing me, with no one seeing me? And so I thought, okay, I can sneak around the back, go up the back stairwell to my office. And so I go up to the door and I grab the handle and I'm just like, God, please don't let anybody be there. I open the door to find who's there, but my senior pastor looked at me like, what is wrong with you? And you can just imagine the, like going before your boss covered in muck and just wondering, okay, do I have a job here anymore? So as I was thinking about these passages, I was reminded of this moment in my life and it made me wonder how often in my life, how often in our lives we treat God that way. How often we come covered in our filth, just kind of hoping that we could sneak in and out of God's presence without him noticing. Now, I'm not saying that we can't come to God as we are. Scripture is very clear that we come to God exactly as we are, that he loves us, that he accepts us. But he doesn't desire to leave us there. He desires to make us holy, as he is holy. And so just a minute ago, I mentioned this idea that God's presence no longer lives in the tabernacle or the temple. But that's only sort of true. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? In other words, we are God's temple and his spirit dwells in our midst. And if that's true, then we need to be holy as God is holy. And so as I thought about that, I thought about these passages. I thought about how they detail the way people ate the way they manage their reproductive lives, the, the way they manage their health. And when it comes to my relationship with God, I don't often think about God when it comes to those things. And it made me realize a couple things. First of all, it made me realize that we need to remember that our relationship with God, it should impact every aspect of who we are and everything that we do. It also made me realize that everything that we do can either move us closer to God or further away from him. <clears throat> so we've talked about how it's all about relationship. We talked about how our God is holy. I have another observation, and that has to do with the overflow of our hearts. In Matthew chapter 15, we see Jesus, and he's with his disciples, and the religious leaders of his day came from Jerusalem to meet with him. And in the middle of that conversation, Jesus says these words. Matthew 15, 11, he says, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. And we need to remember, 
Everyone in this story is Jewish. Jesus was, his disciples were, the religious leaders were. They knew Leviticus 11 very well. It would have impacted every aspect of the way that they ate. And so Jesus saying this is kind of scandalous. In fact, we know the religious leaders were really unhappy with what Jesus was saying. But he didn't back down. He continued. And in Matthew 15, 17, Jesus says this. Don't you see that whatever enters your mouth goes into your stomach and then out of your body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are what defile a person. Now we know that Jesus lived according to the dietary laws. He understood their importance, but he said there's something bigger that you need to be aware of when it comes to holiness. He said our hearts are dangerous. We shouldn't trust them. We should be appalled by the sin that comes from them, things like murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. And we need to do everything in our power through God's spirit to avoid those things. And when we don't get that right, we need to trust in the blood of Jesus to cover that, but we also need to repent from it and turn from it. And so as I was thinking about this idea of being holy and being aware of the things that come from our hearts, um, I'm just aware that, that maybe you're here today, maybe you're with us online today, and you just kind of have this nudge in your life going like, hey, there's, there's this thing in your life that you're not dealing with. There's this area of filth in your life that you continue to walk around in hoping that God won't notice. So there's this area of your life that you haven't opened up to God. He wants to work in it, but you have not allowed him to go there. Or maybe you, you look at this list Jesus gave and you think, man, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm being cautious with my heart. And if that's where you are, I want to tell you two things. First of all, you are not alone. Um, every person that strives to follow Jesus has seasons of their life where they need to come to terms with the things that they're ignoring, the things that, that God is pointing out that they're not dealing with. And so we've all been there. I've been there multiple times. But also, we would love to talk with you about that. We would love to help you figure out what it means to follow Jesus in that aspect of your life. And so if that's where you are, again, reach out to us after the service. Reach out to us online. Text us. We'd love to talk with you. And so we've talked about how um, it's all about relationship, our God is holy, how we need to be careful of the overflow of our hearts. And so I have one final observation, and that's this. As we close today, I'd really like to dig deeper into this understanding of bodily discharges. Just kidding. (laughs) Those things are important, but we're not going to talk about them today. But here's what I am aware of. We strive to be people who desire God's presence. We want to be with him. We desire to approach him as a holy God. We desire to remember that, that we are his temple and therefore we need to orient our lives around his ways. We strive to understand the danger of our own hearts. But we're also aware that each of us who is following Jesus, there was a time where we were far from him. To use the language of Leviticus, we were outside the camp, completely incapable, incapable of coming in because of our uncleanness. And yet through the blood of Jesus, God cleansed us, cleansed us and invited us into relationship with him. And so my final observation is this, that Jesus is all about making the unclean clean. Let me say that again. Jesus is all about making the unclean clean. You see, during his ministry, he healed people with bodily discharges of blood and skin diseases. He, he went to people who were ceremonially unclean, the very things we talked about not doing today. 
But because he was pure, he wasn't defiled by them. Rather, his purity flowed from him to them to make them whole. And so if that is true, as people who have been made clean through Jesus, we are invited to step into the uncleanness of other people's lives and to point them ultimately toward the one who can make them clean as well. And so with that in mind, I want to end with just some questions today. The first of those is this. How are you interacting with the uncleanness of this world? Are you allowing it to defile you? Are you walking around in the mess of your life hoping God doesn't notice? Are you ignoring areas of your life that God is calling you to address? Who's in control of your life? Are you ignoring the unclean things that flow from your heart? Or are you allowing God to make you clean and to point those who are unclean toward a God who can make them clean as well? With that in mind, let me pray for us today. God, it's hard to read these passages and and not just be incredibly aware of how holy you are. God, how good you are and how separate you are. And God, we just thank you that you are a God who is holy, Lord, who, who desires also to be in relationship with us. God, we thank you for that, Lord. We want to be in relationship with you as well. And we thank you that in our uncleanness, God, that you sent Jesus to be the one who can make us clean so that we could be in relationship with you, God, that we could live in your presence. And Lord, we know that there are messes in our lives, God. We're not perfect. And so God, I pray that if there are things that need to be dealt with, Lord, that you would draw our attention to those, that God, that you would bring us to a place where we're willing to say, hey God, I, I wanna hand this over to you. I need your help with this. And God, I thank you that as you make us clean, God, as you continue to do that, that you invite us into the uncleanness of, of the lives of others, God, so that we can point them toward you so you can make them clean as well. So Lord, we praise you and thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you that you are holy and we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.